So tonight I want to talk about themes riffing off a book that I wrote for the Eucharistic revival in the United States, Becoming Eucharistic People, The Parish as a Eucharistic Culture. But I want to start with a question that may seem surprising because Adam asked me to address evangelization in the parish today. What does it mean to evangelize? Uh, some folks have heard this already who were at an earlier talk today that I gave. But when I first moved, I, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I'm a Southern Catholic myself. And when we first moved to the neighborhood, uh, the person next door came and talked to us. Uh, it was the Baldwins. The Baldwins came over and they said, like, welcome to the neighborhood. Where do you go to church? And my grandmother, who was from New Jersey and didn't yet know Southern etiquette, uh, was like, yeah, we, we were going to Our Lady of Fatima, the Catholic church. That was the last time we talked to the Baldwins. Um, I think often evangelization comes to be understood primarily as a mode of sort of door-to-door -door invitation to local parishes or churches. It certainly involves this, but if you pay attention to the whole ecclesial vision of evangelization in the 20th century, there's something more there too. Paul VI in Evangelii Nuntiandi wrote, for the church, Evangelizing means bringing the good news into all the strata of humanity and through its influence, transforming humanity from within and making it new. The purpose of evangelization is therefore precisely this interior change. And if it had to be expressed in one sentence, which is helpful, right? Uh, may all ecclesial documents be so clear. The best way of stating it would be to say that the church evangelizes when she seeks to convert solely through the divine power of the message, right? Not through propaganda, not through violence, rather, but through the divine power of the message, she proclaims both the personal and collective consciences of people the activities in which they engage, and the lives and the concrete milieu which are theirs. Now, Paul VI does not use this word, but when you think about it, what are the personal and collective consciences of people? The activities in which they engage, the lives and concrete milieu which are theirs, that's a culture. It's a culture to transform a culture, right? Um, culture is not reducible to um, particular ethnic groups. Culture is not reducible to high culture, right? Or low culture. Culture is the way that we make sense of life, the way that we discern meaning. In the O'Malley family, our culture is ordered toward, and I apologize for this in Oklahoma, Notre Dame football. 
right? We order our life around this reality. I no longer accept travel on football Saturdays in the fall where I have to be away from Notre Dame because I will be there. Um, our family watches every away game. I don't care what's going on. The children have a rehearsal for something. I'm not going. Okay, so, um, right? It's a total culture, but we all possess such cultures. And evangelization is the very transformation, or as I've said in another book I wrote, the gospelization of culture. It's to make it the space where the gospel enfleshes itself, where the Lord becomes incarnate, hic et nunc, here and now among us. The parish is integral to this. Sometimes I feel a little bit, um, I, I feel a little shame in the academy that I have dedicated my life to studying and building up something like the parish. Now, we're all in parishes, so you're like, Tim, why are you being such a terrible person? But think about it. When Catholics talk about the renewal of culture, we talk about politics. We talk about economics. We talk about education. But do we talk about the parish, right? That basic unit by which we come to knowledge of Christian existence, of life in Christ? Pope Francis in his Evangelii Gaudium writes the parish is the presence of the church in a given territory. I like to remind my undergraduates this who are tempted to parish shop. Um, now you might parish shop, I'm not condemning you, um, but I am condemning my undergraduates. So, um, <laughs> right, that the parish is not a place that you just choose to go. The parish is the, it's not a building, it's the way that the church has divided space and time, right? Space for this area of the gospel. It's an environment for hearing God's word, for growth in the Christian life, for dialogue, proclamation, charitable outreach, worship, and celebration. In all its activities, the parish encourages and trains its members to be evangelizers. It is a community of communities, a sanctuary where the thirsty come to drink in the midst of their journey, and a center of constant missionary outreach. I love the parish. I love the parish as a place because it's one of the few spaces I gather where I don't choose to be there or I don't choose to gather with certain people. Everyone who comes, I have to be with, right? Whether I like it or not. It's a communion. It's my neighbors gathering together to worship. It's the space where cultures are to be created. Cultures are to be formed and to passed on. So what I want to talk about today, though, is this. How does the parish become a Eucharistic culture? A culture that makes available to every person, every man and woman, the love of Christ poured out through the Eucharistic life of the church. And worship is the integral thing I want to focus on. 
Worship for us Catholics is not just what we do on Sundays. I've spent a lot of, or recently, for some reason, I've spent more time in Rome than I ever thought I would. And my favorite church in Rome is San Clemente, which is right near St. John Lateran. If you're ever there, please go. Here's what I love about San Clemente. San Clemente, right? So Dominicans were in San Clemente. That's where they hung out. They lived. They, it, it, they're been responsible for pastoral care there. And during World War II, they were locked in San Clemente. They were not let out. So they did what Dominicans always do is that they decide to pick up a couple of degrees. And the, the, not really, but they learned archaeology. And they began to dig, and they dug, and they dug, and they dug, and they discovered at the very bottom of San Clemente, right, was the first century Roman street that was the place that the first Christians gathered there. And they discovered that what was there was what the church calls a diaconia. It's a space that was created, a church that was created, especially to care for those most in need. In Greco-Roman society, for the most part, you did not care for those most in need. Yes, you wanted bread and circuses, right? You wanted to give people food and opportunities, right? to watch gladiators kill each other in the arena as an effort to say like, wow, look at Rome, we are amazing. But what you did not do is care for those who did not matter. Ironically, Christians did. And we did in a space that was in fact the ecclesia, the church, the space where the Eucharist was celebrated. And if you go up from that first story that was that Roman street, that house church, you now discover, right, a sixth, seventh century church. This time you find the relics of Cyril and Methodius, uh, also known as the apostle to the Slavs, because they uh, created the Cyrillic language that then would become the way that the gospel was translated. Technically, their feast is February 14th. So I always tell my undergraduates, friends, don't give your, your beloved a Valentine. Give them something written in Russian. <laughs> By the way, that used to be more acceptable than it is now to, to say that. But you go up further and you see, right, this mosaic from the 14th century. From the tree of life is Christ upon the cross the sheep all around him, the angels and the saints. What you see is that this parish of San Clemente, which started in the first century, has created a culture, a space that grows out and now invites men and women into this Eucharistic encounter with the Lord. That's what the parish is about. So I want to now concretize what I've been saying by focusing on four features of what constitutes a Eucharistic culture in a parish. 
And I want to start with thesis one. A Eucharistic culture recognizes the vocation of the human person to transcendence. Friends, if there's anything that's worrying to me today about American social life, it's the crisis of personhood. It's the crisis of the dignity of the human person throughout the totality of his or her life cycle. As Pope Francis has re recently written in his Fratelli Tutte, some parts of our human family, it appears, can be readily sacrificed for the sake of others considered worthy of a carefree existence. Ultimately, persons are no longer seen as a paramount value to be cared for and respected, especially when they are poor and disabled, not yet useful like the unborn, or no longer needed like the elderly. Our measure of the importance of a particular person tends to be if they actually possess some sort of use for the social body. Children, you don't. I, I see kids here. You're totally inefficient. <laughs> right? I'm sorry. You're not providing economic production. Get out of here. Right? Or those who are elderly, right? We're often put away from social society, right? We put them away. They have nothing to offer. They become a joke. The prisoner, the migrant, each of these persons has their dignity taken away, their personhood in essence denied, ignored. That's a crisis, friends. It's a crisis, right? It's a crisis of loneliness, of being on the margins of communion and friendship and love. In reality, though, we are made for something more. Personhood is connected not, right, to what I can do, right? One day, I guess I'm a, I'm a person that's important right now enough to be able to talk to you. That's a great gift. One day I won't be able to do this. I will either be uh, unable to travel. I will be potentially dead. I'm thinking that's probably going to happen sometime. Um, right? Um, my personhood is not fundamentally defined by what I do, but who I am. And in one of the most important articles in 20th century theology, Joseph Ratzinger, later to be known as Benedict XVI, described the roots of personhood, the language of personhood in the doctrine of the Trinity. Early on, some people used the word person, persona, to refer to the persons in the Trinity. What this term initially meant was something like a mask. And it was quickly dismissed because it was viewed as heretical. Somehow, though, it made a return. And Christians began to understand that 
Jesus Christ, right, was the person of the Son who is in relationship to the Father, that in the Trinity, there are three persons, but one God. But this language of personhood was entirely relative. Now, that's not a word that you're probably used to. Relative means, in this case, relational, right? What did it mean to be the Son? It was meant to be in relationship to the Father, right? Jesus Christ as the person is entirely in relationship to the Father. That is who he is. He gives the totality of his life as a gift of love to the Father. This is what it means to be a person, according to Ratzinger. The implication is that you are a person not because what you do, but who you are in relationship with. And the ultimate relationship you must possess is worship to the Father. As he writes, the more the person's relativity, your relationality, aims totally and directly at its final goal, at transcendence, the more the person is himself. You are a person precisely because you are made for transcendence. And by the way, that's true of all persons, right? It's why we uphold the dignity of the unborn, because they are already creatures made for relationship. It's why we uphold the dignity of the elderly, because they are relational creatures made to worship God. We are made for transcendence. And think about it. This is your parish, friends. This is what you do. You create a culture where authentic personhood is given through the activity of worship, which incidentally is a totally useless act. I mean, it's very lovely. <laughs> but it's not economically efficient. You can ask the rector of the place if it is. Right? It is a sort of waste of time. But it's the best waste of time. It's the authentic sense, as we'll talk about later, of leisure. And the culture is then you recognize that everyone gathers in that space around the Eucharistic Lord is engaged in an act of worship that is fundamental to who they are, creatures made for worship. That's thesis one. Thesis two, a Eucharistic culture offers a counterproposal relative to what constitutes human happiness. See, here's the great thing. Yes, we are made for worship. We are made to adore a transcendent end outside of ourselves, and the Eucharistic Lord is that supreme transcendent end. But we abide in a world with many stories that propose an alternative sense of what we are made for, of what it means to be a person. These stories are often implicit, written upon our very bodies. In around 12 days, friends, 
I will go home to East Tennessee for the first time since January. That's where I grew up. I live in South Bend, Indiana. It has nothing in common with East Tennessee, except that there are similar words in Indiana, letters in Indiana as in Tennessee. That is the only commonality that is shared. As soon as I arrive in Maryville, Tennessee, this is my hometown with the courthouse and the mountains in the background, I will feel for the first time in roughly six months like I belong somewhere. This is home. This is written upon me. It's what it means to be Tim. I'm shaped by it. It's the story that's part and parcel of my life. See, stories shape us. And the Reformed theologian, James K.A. Smith, notes this in his work on liturgy, on the Eucharist, partially imagining the kingdom. Right? Much of what we do, our action, is not the fruit of conscious deliberation. Instead, much of what we do grows out of our passional orientation to the world, affected by all the ways we've been primed to perceive the world. In short, our actions emerge from how we imagine the world, how we look at things. Right? If you're an OSU fan, you look at the world and you look at Oklahoma and you recognize that they're traitors who should be destroyed. <laughs> right? They're leaving the Big 12. They're abandoning the people of God, uh, right, to, to make some big money out in the SEC. Congratulations. May you lose all the time. If you're an Oklahoma fan, I'm sorry. I also like you. Um, I'm welcome to the SEC. It's a great place. Okay, so. What we do is driven by who we are, by the kind of person we have become, and the shaping of our character is to a great extent the effect of stories that have captivated us, that have sunk into our bones, stories that picture what we think life is about, what constitutes the good life. We live into the stories we've absorbed. We become characters in the drama that has captivated us, right? We are all living out of stories. That's how we make sense of our life. But here's the problem. Where do you get your story? What story do you give yourself over to, right? Do you, like many of my undergraduates, give yourself over to a story in which you think the primary purpose of life is merely economic? How much money you make? How much cash you have? Okay, so I travel a lot. I was in New York City once and I was um, sitting at a bar um, pretending like I wasn't listening to other people's conversations, which is my primary, th that I'm always listening to you. So if you ever see me somewhere, don't worry, I am listening to you. And I will tell your story somewhere throughout the United States. Um, but I was in New York City and there was this young man who was really struggling. He was talking to an older sort of friend or mentor. And he had just gone to Europe with his girlfriend, who he had been living with. And he, when traveling with his girlfriend, recognized that European travel with people is sometimes stressful and decided at the end just to break up with her. And 
He then had to find a new apartment because they were living. To, I, I told you I was very much so listening to this conversation. Um, he had to find a new apartment and he ended up having to find a new job. He left his job. He, everything was up for grabs. And he turned to this slightly older mentor friend and he was like, I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? And he's like, ah, nah, I, he, this guy was from New Jersey. And he was like, every person I've ever met from New Jersey. Uh, he was like, no, no, no I, I can tell you what to do. I'll tell you the secret of life. Okay, great. I'm listening. The secret of life is you got to make a lot of money so you can make your kids happy and your wife happy, and then you'll be happy. End scene. Now, I wasn't able to intervene because I was not supposed to be listening to this conversation. Right? But how many people are formed into this fundamental narrative? The telos of life is making money. I'm not denying that some people make money. I make money. I'm happy to make money. But the telos of my life can't be that. That can't be the primary story by which I make sense of my existence. Or what about, like, desire, being desire? I've taught since, uh, for like six or seven years, Adam mentioned it, this course at Notre Dame on marriage, family life, we start with the discussion of like hookup culture and where it comes from and what it is and why they use Tinder. And I have found that actually what they want is not actually intercourse. What they want is to be desired, right? They don't feel desired and therefore they hook up because they want to feel desired and they hate it. They, they despise it. I've worked with, um, I have 260 students this year or per year. I'm now at the stage where I've taught like 2000 students and almost all of them, all they want is to feel desired. There's like a bro, uh, I, like the back two rows of my class. It's this like, huge auditorium are, um, guys on sports teams at Notre Dame, or as I call it, bro town. And, um, Bro town often comes to me like Nicodemus in the secret of the night. Um, and they're like, yo, Professor O'Malley, uh, I, uh, like I've been hooking up with this girl and here's the thing, like I really like her and I don't know what to do. Right? They've inherited a story of relationship, right? Defined not by commitment, but by this sort of hookup culture, which is not committed, right? And therefore, that's the story they've received. They want out of it and they can't imagine another story. That's why I teach the course to give them a slightly different story. Or think about another story. What you really want is power, right? Power means you can exercise everything. You can get things done. It's worth it to pursue power. Only the people with power matter. Let me offer an alternative story. The story of what unfolds at every Eucharistic liturgy, right? What's the story? As Benedict XVI, as Joseph Ratzinger wrote in his Spirit of the Liturgy, true sacrifice, this is his proposal for the meaning of life, for the ultimate story. True sacrifice is the Chivitas Dei, the city of God, that is love transformed mankind, 
the divinization of creation and the surrender of all things to God, God all in all. That's the purpose of the world. That's the essence of sacrifice and worship. The goal of worship and the goal of creation as a whole are one in the same, divinization, a world of freedom and love. What we propose in the Eucharist, dear friends, is the ultimate story of life. Life is not about power and prestige, fame and fortune. The God-man Jesus Christ gives himself, becomes present to us under the form of bread and wine, precisely so that we know that the world is ordered toward gift, self-gift. Christ is gift. His whole life was sacrifice. I must admit, right? He was born as a baby. If I was God, I wouldn't have been born as a baby. It's disgusting. And I'm God, right? Can't you give me a higher position? Like, must I poop myself? Right? The God-man is born. He empties himself in a sacrifice of love. And the heart of the Eucharist and of Eucharistic presence is the total gift of love. That's the proposal to life. You want to know what the meaning of life is? Sacrifice, which isn't just pain, right? Um, sacrifice is sometimes painful. But as any parent can say, being a parent is a matter of sacrifice, not because the whole thing hurts the whole time. I'm seeing many children and their parents here, so I'm telling you that your parents love you. The sacrifice emerges, right? You do, in fact, give yourself as a gift of love to your children. Um, you do it spontaneously because you want it, right? I don't know how many times I have walked into my children's room at three o'clock in the morning, right? You hear the noise, the cry, and you're like, uh-oh, why are you crying at three o'clock in the morning? The answer is always clear for any parent. That child has vomited in some random corner of their room. It's dark. They didn't know where they were going. They wandered around. They vomited all over the place. You walk into the room. You're like, oh no, you vomited. There's only a couple of reasons why you vomited and all of them impact me. Right? What's your response? Like, hey kid, sorry, clean up your own vomit. No, what do you do? You get involved, right? You get involved and you clean up the vomit and then a day and a half later, or maybe four hours later, you're also vomiting, <laughs> right? That's the gift that is bestowed. That is sacrifice, it's love. And the Eucharist is, as Benedict notes, the sacrament of love, the sacrament of God's sacrificial love made present upon that altar and given to us because God is love. That's the story. God is not interested in power or prestige, fame and fortune. But as St. Paul notes in his letter to the Philippians, though God, Jesus did not claim equality with God as something to be grasped at, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form or taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself. He emptied himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. 
And at this, right, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the Eucharist. It's the sacrifice of love that we gather around, the story of love made present to us here and now. And that story of love has a capacity to transform a society. One of the weird parts of my career has been the interest of my work in Poland. I have spent a lot of time in Poland. I expected to spend zero time in Poland, and I have spent many weeks in Poland. But I have been to Warsaw, and I have stood on Victory Square. Warsaw was destroyed during World War II, bombed entirely by the Germans. The Russians rebuilt it, but they also built Victory Square. And on Victory Square, they would march with their troops, reminding the Polish people, right, that they, in fact, were not powerful that it was the Russians who were in control. Then there was this guy who was elected Pope, Archbishop Cardinal Carol Wotiwa, John Paul II. And in 1979, he made one of his first pastoral visits to Warsaw. And he celebrated mass on Victory Square on the Feast of Pentecost. And in the very end of the homily, and what must be one of the most powerful homilies that have ever been delivered, uh, I think, in the history of the church, at least the top ten. Peter has at least one of them, maybe two. Uh, but after Peter, this must be up there. All that I embraced in thought and in my heart during this Eucharist, I include it in this unique, most holy sacrifice of Christ on Victory Square. And I cry, I, who am a son of the land of Poland, who am also John, Pope John Paul II, I cry from all the depths of this millennium, I cry on the vigil of Pentecost, let your spirit descend. Let your spirit descend and renew the face of the earth, the face of this land. Imagine hearing this as a people subjugated as a people forgotten. And that you actually do matter. You have a power that is given to you from the God-man Jesus Christ, the power of a love that can renew the face of this earth, the face of this land. If the Eucharist can do this in Poland, in Warsaw, in Krakow, I bet it can do it in Tulsa. Thesis three, a Eucharistic culture offers an integral formation that fosters human flourishing. Human beings are weird because we are one of the few creatures in the cosmos that need a pretty extensive education, right? If you see a horse born, they're born, and then they're like, hey, what's up? I'm a horse. I'm now going to walk. Time to learn to eat. Whereas our babies are born in such a way that they can do absolutely nothing. They would literally die if you didn't do anything to help the baby. The baby is, a, as we already acknowledged, a useless creature. 
very cute, wonderful, the Lord has made the baby that way as a way that we continue to propagate the human species, right? But the baby, right, has to learn, in essence, to be human. They learn from everything. They pay attention to your lips. They pay attention to your face. They pay attention to everything. They must be close to you all the time because they're learning in this way. As creatures, we are one of the few that must learn to be who we are. Jacques Maritain, a Catholic philosopher, wrote about this in a work, The Crossroads of Education, which he describes the end of formation, which is the formation into being fully human. If it is true that our chief duty consists in becoming who we are, nothing is more difficult for each of us, or more difficult, rather, important for each of us, or more difficult than to become a man. Thus, the chief task of education is above all to shape man or to guide the evolving dynamism through which man forms himself as man. School education seeks the formation of the human person to become fully human. We have to form people to do that. I know this because I have children. I'm in the middle of forming them to be fully human, right? During the pandemic, this is being recorded, but my daughter will never hear it, right? Uh, during the pandemic, we were at home a lot. Our daughter was learning to be potty trained. And the way that she expressed this was to just wander around the house naked and to take and to defecate in random corners. Um, that was the pandemic for us. That was a really great gift. Um, we'd be like, where's Maggie? And then we would go downstairs. We're like, that's where Maggie is. Okay, great. Um, we had to form Maggie, but that's not one of the options that's available to you as a creature. Um, right. This, on the other hand, this potty is. And so, um, and we continue to form Maggie in ways that are far more mature now. Part of being human, though, part of our formation to be a hu human being is learning to keep the feast. To be human, as we've already said, is to worship. But we have to propose to people that it's worth keeping the feast. Our, so our society today is very frenetic. It moves very fast. We don't like to slow down. We close Walmart for about an hour and a half per year, right? Perpetual activity is considered an intrinsic good. But the feast is basically saying, no, it's worth not acting to do something better, to just be, to slow down. As the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper wrote in one of his, uh, I love his, this work, in tune with the world, a theory of festivity. From this, it follows that the concept of festivity is inconceivable without an element of contemplation, that is, beholding with love. It means a relaxing of the strenuous fixation of the eye on the given frame of reference, without which no utilitarian act is accomplished. Instead, the field of vision widens, concern for success or failure of an act falls away, and the soul turns to an infinite object. It becomes aware of the illimitable horizon of reality as a whole. I'm a dad of two kids and I'm getting a little older in my dadhood and in my personhood. And sometimes I catch myself doing nothing else but looking at my children, not asking anything of them, but just looking at them and wondering at them in love. 
This year, my daughter was at kindergarten. We have a kindergarten at Notre Dame and it's one of the best kindergarten I've ever encountered in the world. I love it so much and now it's over and she's gone. But my daughter, um, she's now on to first grade and her life will be miserable as she enters the industrial complex of schools. Okay, so um, sorry, if you teach in schools, I apologize, but uh, she had a great year and I worry about her now. Okay. Um, I drop her off and it did, it was often frigid because I live in South Bend. I don't live in Oklahoma. It's cold and miserable. And, um, but we developed a thing, my daughter and I, where I would drop her off in the morning. I'd take her to her room and I'd say, goodbye, Maggie. And she'd say, meet me at the window. And I would go to the window and I would traipse across the snow. Uh, I, I have very large boots and a trape in the snow and I'd stand in front of the window. And we had a series of things we do with, to each other. We, we, I'll put my hands, uh, the mic down for this. I'm a 41-year-old man, <laughs> right? I'm a, I'm a 41-year-old man, um, and it was cold, and I did that every time, and I slowed down, and that was part of Maggie and I's feast, our feast with each other, our festival, and as the year went along, I came to like suddenly understand like the gift that I was receiving in this. There's gonna be a day where Maggie doesn't wanna do that with dad, probably coming up very soon. She will instead wanna give dad another sign, more closely linked to the middle finger or rolling of the eyes. But to perceive there the gift of reality, the gift of love, the gift of this person in front of me, right? That requires taking time, keeping the feast. And we actually have a hard time with that, right? We have a hard time being slow of worshiping God. I'm very inspired by a theologian and philosopher, Romano Guardini, whose work has basically, I, I view my whole life as sort of trying to respond to the challenges he raised in the 1920s and 30s. And in one of these works, Liturgy and Liturgical Formation, Guardini asks us, the central question remains, what's the essence of a liturgical and read Eucharistic attitude? What would be required of man in the community to be rooted in the liturgy? Which forces and sensitivities need to be activated, activated? Even yes, the core of every person, that is his or her being. We're dealing with a very special skill a becoming and a growing. We're dealing with a kind of being. That means we're dealing with the problem of formation in the truest sense of the word. To recognize the gift of love given in the Eucharist, to participate fruitfully in the Eucharist, we don't just need books about the Eucharist. I've written two, so if you'd like to buy them, please do. <laughs> Rather, we need a change in who we are. It's our level of being. Are we creatures of gratitude? Are we creatures who slow down and look and gaze with love? Guardini invites us to this work in his letters from Lake Como, which I recommend reading as well. Guardini comments on the way that we don't actually look at or understand something like an open flame anymore. He says, think of the light given by an open flame. He's actually addressing what we've lost by lights, which I'm 
I'm, by the way, I'm happy that we have lights. I'm not complaining about electricity, especially in Oklahoma, uh, where I need the air conditioning or I'll die. Right? Think of the light given by an open flame, how everything became alive in the living light, in a light that constantly battles darkness, that holds a warm color in movement in the flickering flame. In such a light, the room constantly comes to life afresh. It's why uh, my undergraduates love candlelight masses, right? All the light off in the church, but just the light of the candle illuminating everything, making the space come to life in a distinctive way. Gordini doesn't stop there, though. In another work, Sacred Signs, he speaks about this candle anew. By the way, I see a lot of you taking photos, and I always forget to announce this. If at the end, if you get my email address, I will send you these slides free. Understand that Notre Dame sends no one, nothing for free to anyone, so uh, this will be the last thing that you receive free from Notre Dame. <laughs> the shapes attitudes, movements of objects all speak to us. They're all means of communication. It is the incessant occupation of the human soul to express through them its own interior life and to make them serve as its signs and symbols. One of these objects strikes me. It's that of a lighted candle. There it rises, firmly fixed in the metal cup on the broad base, long shaft, consuming in the little flame that flickers above it the pure substance of the wax in softly shining light. It seems a symbol of selfless generosity. Think about this the next time you go to Mass. The Eucharist, of course, is the personal presence of our Lord given to us. But it's all the signs and symbols accompanying the Eucharist alongside it, including the candle. Why do we light candles at Mass? We don't need them. The church has lights, right? It's inefficient. It's merely festive, right? No, it's festive in the fullest sense of that term, right? The candle firmly fixed, endlessly consuming that little flame, a symbol of self-gift. Think about the marvel of what we do every Easter vigil when we bring that giant lit candle after the deacon has worked out really hard. I mean, he's done really heavy lifting. He's probably gone to the gym multiple times and carries this very heavy candle into the church. That candle is Christ. It's an image of Christ, right? And as the exalted itself proclaims, right? This candle, what does it do? It gives itself to us. It, in burning itself, it gives itself in light. Look at the candle. But to look at the candle takes slowing down. Doesn't this change everything about education? Shouldn't all our education be different in light of this fact? In a work that's inspired everything I've done as a teacher, uh, Luigi Giussani's The Risk of Education, he notes that tradition, all tradition, all education really, serves as a 
explanatory hypothesis of reality for the young person. No discovery can be made, that is, no new step may be taken, except through a set idea of possible meanings. The working hypothesis of tradition gives people certainty about the positivity of their own endeavors. It allows for the marvelous eruption of discoveries, the marvelous succession of stains and chain of connections that characterize the development or education of a being. An introduction to the total reality cannot occur without some idea of meaning that the individual in formation considers to be sufficiently solid, intense, and sure. I highlight this because of the sponsorship by the Alquin Institute. Friends, education isn't just about getting degrees that enable you to get credentials. True education is wisdom. It's slow. It takes time. It takes time to contemplate meaning. So might I invite that the Eucharistic revival invites us as the church to slow down in every way. Slow down in our worship. Slow down in our education and formation to really give people an introduction to the gift of wisdom, of truth, of goodness, of beauty, of all of reality. Last thesis, a Eucharistic culture moves towards solidarity in the neighborhood. If you look at the United States right now, the endemic, the pandemic is loneliness. People feel alone, right? We could highlight rates of suicide. We could highlight anxiety. We can highlight that my own institution, the University of Notre Dame, we hire counselor after counselor, but if I was going to hire enough counselors at Notre Dame to handle all, all our students, we would need like a thousand counselors, right? It is a pandemic of anxiety. It's what Pope Francis highlights in his Fratelli Tutti. We are more alone than ever in an increasingly massified world that promotes individual interests and weakens the communitarian dimension of life. We feel infinitely connected by these devices, but we are more alone than ever. Friends, the Eucharist, the end of the Eucharist is St. Thomas Aquinas notes, what he calls the res tantum. The reality itself is the communion of the church, the communion of the church, the charity of the church with one another. St. John Paul II has noted that what we're talking about is solidarity, Eucharistic solidarity. As I always tell my undergraduates, solidarity isn't like, oh man, I feel you, bro, right? That's vague sympathy. Solidarity means my good is your good. Your flourishing is my flourishing and your suffering is my suffering. He writes it's above, in his encyclical on solidarity, it's above all a question of interdependence sensed as a system determining relationships in the contemporary world. 
and its economic, cultural, politic, political, and religious elements. When interdependence becomes recognized in this way, the correlative response as a moral and social attitude, as a virtue, is solidarity. This then, as John Paul II says more eloquently, is not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good, that is to say to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all. When you receive the Lord in the Eucharist, you have indeed encountered him. But in encountering him, you are called to love one another as I, not me, Tim, the Lord, as I have first loved you. You are called to that love. And that love extends to everyone in the parish. Real solidarity means you know each other's names. You know what each of you is struggling with. You care for one another in the midst of your joys and your sufferings alike. It also means that you're in solidarity with this neighborhood. As we've already said, the parish isn't a building, it is a neighborhood. Do you know your neighbors? Are you in solidarity with your neighbors? Is their good your good? That's the consequence of Eucharistic reception. And the way this functions, I suspect, and we're nearing the very end of the talk, you'll be glad to know. <laughs> the way this functions is not just the parish itself, but understanding that the parish is made up of countless and innumerable families who live this Eucharistic life together. The language of the domestic church is no mere metaphor. The family is a locus of Eucharistic love, of hospitality, of solidarity. These are all the kids in my neighborhood once upon a time when they were younger. Our neighborhood is not a bunch of people privately living apart from one another. We are all in each other's life for better or for worse, right? We are together. Our family, our house has an open door policy for the array of children who just walk into our house all the time. The needs of parents in that neighborhood. This is not, uh, this is not, by the way, just for like people who are married, right? Anyone in the neighborhood is welcome. This is what it means to open one's door, to be a Christian community. This is what the domestic church can become, a space by which the Eucharistic mystery of love takes flesh in time and space. As Cardinal Mark Ouellette wrote in a work, uh, Divine Likeness, on the mystery of the family, the sacrificial mission, and he's speaking of marriage and family in particular, the sacramental mission of the couple and the family is not an addition for those who have time to help out in the parish or diocesan organization. In other words, families aren't just like 
yeah, like, it's nice if they get involved. That would be great. You know, maybe they could take up the gift sometimes. <laughs> Rather, the mission is inscribed in the being of the couple as a communio personarum, a community of persons sealed by the Holy Spirit. This gift of marital holiness is a supernatural work of art which shines in the midst of society as a real symbol of the church indissolubly united to Christ, the witness of united families who live according to the model of the holy family. And I chose this particularly for this place since this is in fact your cathedral. Is at one time called the earthly trinity it carries with it a creative breath of culture in civilization. A Eucharistic culture is created every time a family leaves Mass and goes to live this Eucharistic life in their neighborhood. To live this life of worship there, to live in solidarity with all around them. So friends, in conclusion, a Eucharistic culture in the parish is intended to invite our worship of the Eucharistic Lord into the world, to invite every person to encounter his love, just as we see in this image of the Ghent altarpiece. At the center is the lamb once slain, spilling forth his blood for the life of the world. He responds to violence, not with more violence, but with love and self-gift. And from every corner of the world comes the angels and the saints in worship. The saints who are never asked to leave behind the particularities of their identity, but they bring this forth to worship the Lord. This is a culture for the root of culture is linked to cult, not the weird one, but the act of worship. True culture is established through the act of worship, and the parish has a capacity to establish a Eucharistic culture that can be a medicine for all that ails us in this age, inviting men and women to the supper of the Lamb.